It's always difficult to be the last speaker at a session like this because, um, well, first of all, I'm the only thing standing between you and dinner, right? Uh, but also you run the risk of everyone having already said all the interesting points, right? Uh, but we've heard a lot about hunter-gatherers today, and uh, we've questioned things about human nature, and so we might ask this question. Do hunter-gatherers tell us about human nature? In a word, no. <laughs> and in two words, yes, but. Not any more than anyone else, like anthropologists or geneticists or cognitive scientists. You see, hunter-gatherers are just like you and me only different. They're like you and me because they operate with the same minds and the same intellectual potentials as you and me. They're different because they use those minds in very different uh, environments, social and cultural circumstances. So, yes, hunter-gatherers have something to say about human nature. After all, they're humans. But many people think that Hunter-gatherers offer special insight into human nature. Why is this? People know that a long, long time ago, everyone lived as hunter-gatherers. And some think if we could go back in time to when humans first appeared, that we might see human nature in the raw. For some people, going back in time is like going deeper into humanity's soul. And for some... That soul is all Rousseauian sweetness and light, and for others, it's a Hobbesian hell. Neither of these gentlemen actually knew anything about hunter-gatherers or even knew of the existence of hunter-gatherers. There's a, there's a problem, though. If you want to study the past, you have to do archaeology. And archaeology isn't rocket science. In fact, it's a lot harder. <laughs> It's difficult to infer human behavior, let alone human nature, from the few uh, bones and stone tools that survive what Sir Francis Bacon called the shipwreck of time. And so many people turn away from archaeology to uh, ethnography, thinking that living hunter-gatherers are as close as we can get to the past. For them, uh, this might be prehistory and a privileged gl glimpse into human nature. Both statements are incorrect. Living hunter-gatherers aren't Stone Age relics. They live in the present, the globalized market system with insurgencies, cell phones, McDonald's, Facebook, and Starbucks. Madagascar's Mikea, for example, can't be Stone Age relics since Madagascar was colonized very late in world prehistory by Indonesian and later African horticulturalists. The name Mikea may come from the expression ulusimekiea, which means people who don't like to be followed. Some two centuries ago and more, Mikea fled into the forest to uh, escape the slave uh, trade. And they did so again in the 1960s to escape the fledgling Malagasy government's tax collectors. In the late 20th century, uh, the Mikaya grew and sold maize to traders. It was a Pakistani man who drove this truck, who then sold that maize on the world livestock feed market. The Mikaya moved along tracks uh, in their forests created by oil companies in the 1950s. In the 1990s, 
They listened to music on radios and cassette players and played top ten hits on homemade guitars. These guys here uh, uh, could uh, give uh, Eric Clapton a run for his money. (laughs) You can't ignore those facts, as some filmmakers have done, and think that you understand how the Mikaya would live if they were really hunter-gatherers and nothing more. A second reason is that if we think that hunter-gatherers reflect human nature, my first question would be, which ones? We can justify any vision of human nature simply by appealing to the right group at the right time. If you want a noble savage view of humanity, you might pick the uh, mid to late 20th century foragers of southern Africa, often portrayed as sort of Rousseauian hippies. But if you picked 19th century hunter-gatherers who lived on North America's northwest coast, the Kwakwakwak, the Shimshun, or the Tlingit, Uh, with their socially stratified villages that fought for prestige, slaves, and land, you'd come up with the Hobbesian road warrior. You can imagine if somebody could go back in time to the Chumash during the medieval warm period, they'd have a very different ethnography than if they went there three or 4,000 years ago. So which one of these is right? Well, of course, they both are. Hunter-gatherers are capable of both these extremes. Societies are collections of individuals, but they're more than the sum of their parts. As individuals, as we saw here today, there are biological, psychological, and environmental uh, circumstances that might incline us to be more Hitler or Mother Teresa. But what determines which way we go as a society? To address this question anthropologically, we have to turn away from looking for the essential hunter-gatherer and just look at behavioral variation. And today, we're interested in violence. Hunter-gatherers don't live lives of perfect bliss. You've seen that today. In fact, you've seen some pretty gruesome examples of it. But they generally have low rates of non-lethal aggression, such as fistfights. This isn't because they're good people. The reason has to do with the cultural denial of aggression in small egalitarian communities. And um, incidentally, I see this all the time when I run uh, archaeological field crews out in the mountains. When Jean Briggs entitled her 1970 book on an Inuit family, Never in Anger, she didn't mean that the Inuit are never angry, only that it's inappropriate to show it. But in small communities, you will tread on other people's toes and sometimes pent-up tensions erupt, the reactive uh, violence. And that resulting violence often has no objective other than to express anger, and sometimes that anger can turn into blood drunkenness and someone can die as a result of rage, but not the calculated risk of proactive violence. And warfare is different because it is calculated risk. We can define it as uh, simply relatively impersonal, lethal aggression between communities. Impersonal doesn't mean that warriors aren't passionate. And in fact, if leaders want to, uh, leaders will need to inspire uh, passion in their followers if they want those men to put their lives on the line and to kill someone. War is nasty business. And while its superficial goal is revenge or retaliation, I suspect that for a group to be compelled to fight, the goal must also be to secure some advantage 
to acquire slaves, women, food, territory, or to make a preemptive strike. Sometimes the source of these conflicts can sound so silly that they can seem to reinforce the stereotype that men will fight over damn near anything. Here's one case from North America's northwest coast. The Akutat Tlingit attacked the Sitka Tlingit because the Sitka had outsang the Yakutak for two years in a row. That's right, it's a fight over a DJ's playlist. But those songs were a mere index for a far more significant fact. To retaliate after the first embarrassment, the Akutat had learned songs from a neighboring group. But the Sitka, I suppose figuring what, out what the Yakutat would do, had also increased their repertoire with songs from the Aleut. It's not the songs that mattered, but that the songs are evidence of friendly connections with others. They were an index of uh, allies. With their more extensive playlist, the Sitka proclaimed themselves once again more powerful than the Yakutat. The Yakutat had no, strike, uh, no choice but to strike preemptively or risk being perceived as weak and vulnerable. Uh, violence is one option that humans can use to reach an objective. But like all options, it comes with a cost. And it can be a steep one. You could lose what you have, you could get hurt, or you could die. And even when successful, violence comes with a cost. It makes enemies, and it drains resources that could be devoted to other activities. You solve one immediate problem, but you create other longer-term ones. When is the cost of violence worth the benefit? The answer almost certainly has to do with population pressure, which we've already seen uh, today. Most nomadic hunter-gatherers follow Ronald Reagan's advice and vote with their feet. When things go bad in their neighborhood, a drought, a range fire, illness, their first response is to pack up and move. And food is a special concern because the problem of eating is, is an immediate one. This means that we might expect warfare to be more common among sedentary than among nomadic hunter-gatherers, and this appears to be the case. Ethnographic data are really hard to use because they were collected by different researchers at different historical moments under different conditions, different methods, different assumptions. As a result, we can only look for the most general patterns. And the general pattern is that warfare and violence are at least correlated with population pressure. Here I've measured population pressure from a measure of primary production relative to population density. It's a rough measure of the amount of food available per person. And the warfare data come from the standard cross-cultural sample that Dr. Ember mentioned. It's variable 768, if you like that kind of stuff. Uh, and the data show that at high levels of population pressure, warfare is more common than at lower levels. And the same appears to hold true for general homicide rates. These data are quite messy, as they include both very careful field studies, such as those by Kim Hill and his uh, colleagues, and other just more general back-of-the-envelope uh, estimates. Some include deaths due to warfare, and some include infanticide, but others do not. Still, the general pattern seems to be that homicide rates are high at high levels of population pressure. Uh, 
when there's a lot of people relative to the food base, hunter-gatherers fight. And really, there's nothing remarkable uh, in that. Violence may not be human nature, but wanting to survive is. If you put anyone between a rock and a hard place, they'll fight, whether they're hunter-gatherers or university faculty. <laughs> okay, so the ethnographic data are messy. Does archaeology provide any clue as to the conditions of warfare? Did our most ancient ancestors find themselves between a rock and a hard place often? The earliest best evidence of warfare comes from the 13,000-year-old site of Jebel Sahaba in northern Sudan. And the evidence is pretty clear. All the pencils you see in this photo are not the result of a sloppy uh, excavator. Instead, each points to a stone projectile tip embedded in one or the other of these two unfortunate individuals. And there were 24 such burials like that. This is war, or something close to it. But this site of Jebel Sahaba stands out precisely because it's a rare case. Uh, other studies find far less evidence of warfare in the, in the Paleolithic. And in fact, there's precious little of it until after the appearance of uh, agriculture, and in fact, after the appearance of state societies. I, I'm sure Paleolithic hunter-gatherers got ticked off at one another, but war is a cultural behavior, and it appears rarely among prehistoric nomadic hunter-gatherers. Why? All hunter-gatherers periodically evaluate whether to help someone or pay the cost of not helping, which is the risk of retaliation. The prevalence of violence among hunter-gatherers has to do with how significant imbalances are between the population and their food supply, how frequently those imbalances strike, as we saw from Dr. Ember's work, uh, how widespread those imbalances are, and how easy it is for one group to help another, and also how likely it is that a host group will need their generosity to be reciprocated in the future. In other words, it entails a very complicated calculus. Warfare occurs among undergatherers where population pressure is high, and also where key resources can be controlled by one group, such as a prime salmon fishing location. This is what much of the fighting on the Northwest Coast was really all about. And it occurs when the group controlling those resources has no need for the lesser resources controlled by others. For those who are shut out of the best places, violence may be the only answer in times of dire need. And so those who control key resources must now defend themselves. This situation kicks in a very complex cultural process um, that uh, Polly uh, Wiesner talked about that leads some societies to value bellicosity, to use generosity as a club, to compete for prestige, to lower the status of women as marriage is used uh, as a way to build alliances, and to occasionally come to blows. This set of traits is more prevalent among sedentary than among nomadic hunter-gatherers. Nomadic foragers are interdependent. They can't afford to upset one another, and they cope with occasional squabbles by moving and by continually building and negotiating alliances, like the woman Polly showed with all of the, the necklaces on her. Those are signs of who she is connected to. 
And so we see that warfare and violence has a lot to do with material conditions of life. It's not explained solely by human nature, whatever that is. And that's good news. Why? Well, you all probably came here today because you'd like to know how to solve problems like Syria uh, and the Ukraine and the hundred other places that are, that are troubled in the, in the world. Carta wants to know, how did humanity get to this state of affairs? You just want to know, can we eradicate warfare as we eradicated diseases like scarlet fever? Can your grandchildren live in a peaceful world? Any particular instance of state-sponsored violence is difficult to solve, to say the least. What hunter-gatherers teach me, though, is not to worry about human nature uh, as part of the problem, but to focus on the material conditions that lead us to warfare and violence. And hunter-gatherers tell us that isolation, imbalances in wealth and power, and client-patron relationships all increase the likelihood of violence. Interdependence, cooperation, equality of opportunity, and the free movement of people all decrease it. Anthropology teaches us the importance of looking at the data we have to reveal what factors shape the variation that is human life. And that's a more valuable scientific approach than debating essentialist ideas of human nature. Violence is one option, absolutely, but no more so than, than peace. We can look to hunter-gatherers for an answer to this question, but not because they tell us more about human nature, but simply because they are humans coping with universal human problems. Thank you.